What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 11 of The Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter 11 The ghost has attained the southernmost point of the arc she is describing across the Pacific, and is already beginning to edge away to the west and north. Towards some lone island it is rumored where she will fill her water casks, before proceeding to the season's hunt along the coast of Japan. The hunters have experimented and practiced with their rifles and shotguns till they are satisfied and the boat-pullers and steerers have made their sprit-sails, bound the oars and rowlocks in leather and sennet, so that they will make no noise when creeping on the seals, and put their boats in apple-pie order, to use Leech's homely phrase. His arm, by the way, is healed nicely, though the scar will remain all his life. Thomas Mugridge lives in mortal fear of him, and is afraid to venture on deck after dark. There are two or three standing quarrels in the forecastle. Lewis tells me the gossip of the sailors finds its way aft, and that two of the telltales have been badly beaten by their mates. He shakes his head dubiously over the outlook for the man Johnson, who is boat-puller in the same boat with him. Johnson has been guilty of speaking his mind too freely and has collided two or three times with Wolf Larsen over the pronunciation of his name. Johansen, he thrashed on the amidships deck the other night, since which time the mate has called him by his proper name. But of course it is out of the question that Johnson should thrash Wolf Larsen. Lewis has given me additional information about Death Larsen, which tallies with the captain's brief description. We may expect to meet Death Larsen on the Japan coast. And look out for squalls, is Lewis's prophecy, for they hate one another like the wolf whelps they are. Death Larsen is in command of the only sealing steamer in the fleet, the Macedonia, which carries fourteen boats, whereas the rest of the schooners carry only six. There is wild talk of cannon aboard, and of strange raids and expeditions she may make, ranging from opium smuggling into the States, and arms smuggling into China, to blackbirding and open piracy. Yet I cannot but believe, for I have never yet caught him in a lie, while he has a cyclopedic knowledge of sealing and the men of the sealing fleets. As it is forward and in the galley, so it is in the steerage and aft on this veritable hell-ship. Men fight and struggle ferociously for one another's lives. 
the hunters are looking for a shooting scrape at any moment between Smoke and Henderson, whose old quarrel has not healed, while Wolf Larsen says positively that he will kill the survivor of the affair, if such affair comes off. He frankly states that the position he takes is based on no moral grounds, that all the hunters could kill and eat one another so far as he is concerned, were it not that he needs them alive for the hunting. If they will only hold their hands until the season is over, he promises them a royal carnival when all grudges can be settled and the survivors may toss the non-survivors overboard and arrange a story as to how the missing men were lost at sea. I think even the hunters are appalled at his cold-heartedness. Wicked men, though they be, they are certainly very much afraid of him. Thomas Mugridge is cur-like in his subjection to me, while I go about in secret dread of him. His is the courage of fear, a strange thing I know well of myself, and at any moment it may master the fear and impel him to the taking of my life. My knee is much better though it often aches for long periods, and the stiffness is gradually leaving the arm which Wolf Larsen squeezed. Otherwise, I am in splendid condition. Feel that I am in splendid condition. My muscles are growing harder and increasing in size. My hands, however, are a spectacle for grief. They have a parboiled appearance, are afflicted with hangnails, while the nails are broken and discolored, and the edges of the quick seem to be assuming a fungoid sort of growth. Also, I am suffering from boils due to the diet, most likely, for I was never afflicted in this manner before. I was amused a couple of evenings back by seeing Wolf Larsen reading the Bible, a copy of which, after the futile search for one at the beginning of the voyage, had been found in the dead mate's sea-chest. I wondered what Wolf Larsen could get from it, and he read aloud to me from Ecclesiastes. I could imagine he was speaking the thoughts of his own mind as he read to me, and his voice reverberating deeply and mournfully in the confined cabin charmed and held me. He may be uneducated, but he certainly knows how to express the significance of the written word. I can hear him now, as I shall always hear him, the primal melancholy vibrant in his voice as he read. I gathered me also silver and gold, and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I get me men-singers and women-singers, and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments, and that of all sorts. So I was great, and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom returned with me. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. All things come alike to all. There is one event, to the righteous and to the wicked. 
to the good and to the clean and to the unclean, to him that sacrificeth and to him that sacrificeth not. As is the good, so is the sinner, and he that sweareth as he that feareth an oath. This is an evil among all things that are done under the sun, that there is one event unto all, yea, also the heart of the sons of men is full of evil, and madness is in their heart while they live, and after that they go to the dead. For to him that is joined to all the living there is hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more a reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, and their hatred, and their envy is now perished. Neither have they any more a portion for ever in anything that is done under the sun. There you have it, Hump, he said, closing the book upon his finger and looking up at me. The preacher who was the king over Israel in Jerusalem thought as I think. You call me a pessimist. Is not this pessimism of the blackest? All is vanity and vexation of spirit. There is no profit under the sun. There is one event unto all. To the fool and the wise, the clean and the unclean, the sinner and the saint. And that event is death and an evil thing, he says. For the preacher loved life and did not want to die, saying, For a living dog is better than a dead lion. He preferred the vanity and vexation to the silence and unmovableness of the grave, and so do I. To crawl is piggish, but to not crawl, to be as the clod and rock is loathsome to contemplate. It is loathsome to the life that is in me, the very essence of which is movement, the power of movement and the consciousness of the power of movement. Life itself is unsatisfaction. But to look ahead to death is greater unsatisfaction. You were worse off than Omar, I said. He, at least, after the customary agonizing of youth, found content and made of his materialism a joyous thing. Who is Omar? Wolf Larsen asked, and I did no more work that day. Nor the next, nor the next. In his random reading, he had never chanced upon the Rubiat as it was to him like a great find of treasure. Much I remembered, possibly two-thirds of the quatrains, and I managed to piece out the remainder without difficulty. We talked for hours over single stanzas, and I found him reading into them a wail of regret and a rebellion which, for the life of me, I could not discover myself. Possibly I recited with a certain joyous lilt which was my own, for his memory was good, and at a second rendering, very often the first, he made a quatrain his own. He recited the same lines and invested them with an unrest and passionate revolt that was well-nigh convincing. I was interested as to which quatrain he would like best, and was not surprised when he hit upon the one born of an instant's irritability and quite at variance with the Persian's complacent philosophy and genial code of life. 
what without asking hither hurried whence and without asking whither hurried hence oh many a cup of this forbidden wine must drown the memory of that insolence great wolf larsen cried great that's the keynote insolence he could not have used a better word in vain i objected and denied he deluged me overwhelmed me with argument it's not the nature of life to be otherwise life when it knows that it must cease living will always rebel it cannot help itself the preacher found life and the works of life all a vanity and vexation an evil thing but death the ceasing to be able to be vain and vexed he found an eviler thing through chapter after chapter he is worried by the one event that cometh to all alike so omar so i so you even you for you rebelled against dying when cookie sharpened a knife for you you were afraid to die the life that was in you that composes you that is greater than you did not want to die you have talked of the instinct of immortality i talk of the instinct of life which is to live and which when death looms near and large masters the instinct so-called of immortality it mastered it in you you cannot deny it because a crazy cockney cook sharpened a knife you are afraid of him now you are afraid of me you cannot deny it if i should catch you by the throat thus his hand was about my throat and my breath was shut off and began to press the life out of you thus and thus your instinct of immortality will go glimmering and your instinct of life which is longing for life will flutter up and you will struggle to save yourself ha huh? i see the fear of death in your eyes you beat the air with your arms you exert all your puny strength to struggle to live your hand is clutching my arm lightly it feels as a butterfly resting there your chest is heaving your tongue protruding your skin turning dark your eyes swimming to live to live to live you are crying and you are crying to live here and now not hereafter you doubt your immortality huh? ha 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 you are not sure of it you won't chance it this life only you are certain is real ah it is growing dark and darker it is the darkness of death the ceasing to be the ceasing to feel, the ceasing to move, that is gathering about you, descending upon you, rising around you. Your eyes are becoming set. They are glazing. My voice sounds faint and far. You cannot see my face. And still you struggle in my grip. You kick with your legs. Your body draws itself up in knots like a snake's. Your chest heaves and strains to live, to live to live i heard no more consciousness was blotted out by the darkness he had so graphically described and when i came to myself i was lying on the floor and he was smoking a cigar and regarding me thoughtfully with that old familiar light of curiosity in his eyes well have i convinced you he demanded here take a drink of this i want to ask you some questions I rolled my head negatively on the floor. Your arguments are too, uh, forcible. 
I managed to articulate, at cost of great pain to my aching throat. "'You'll be all right in half an hour,' he assured me, "'and I promise I won't use any more physical demonstrations. Get up now. You can sit on a chair.' And, toy that I was of this monster, the discussion of Omar and the preacher was resumed, and half the night we sat up over it. End of chapter 11「the relations among the men, strained and made tense by feuds, quarrels, and grudges, were in a state of unstable equilibrium, and evil passions flared up in flame like prairie grass. Thomas Mugridge is a sneak, a spy, an informer. He has been attempting to curry favor and reinstate himself in the good graces of the captain by carrying tales of the men forward. He it was, I know, that carried some of Johnson's hasty talk to Wolf Larsen. Johnson, it seems, bought a suit of oilskins from the slop chest and found them to be of greatly inferior quality. Nor was he slow in advertising the fact. The slop chest is a sort of miniature dry goods store which is carried by all sealing schooners and which is stocked with articles peculiar to the needs of the sailors. Whatever a sailor purchases is taken from his subsequent earnings on the sealing ground, for as it is with the hunters, so it is with the boat pullers and steerers. In the place of wages they receive a lay, a rate of so much per skin for every skin captured in their particular boat. But of Johnson's grumbling at the slop chest I knew nothing so that what I witnessed came with a shock of sudden surprise. I had just finished sweeping the cabin, and had been inveigled by Wolf Larsen into a discussion of Hamlet, his favorite Shakespearean character, when Johansson descended the companion stairs followed by Johnson. The latter's cap came off after the custom of the sea, and he stood respectfully in the center of the cabin, swaying heavily and uneasily to the roll of the schooner and facing the captain. "'Shut the doors and draw the slide,' Wolf Larsen said to me. As I obeyed, I noticed an anxious light come into Johnson's eyes, but I did not dream of the cause. I did not dream of what was to occur until it did occur, but he knew from the very first what was coming, and awaited it bravely, and in his action I found complete refutation of all Wolf Larsen's materialism. The sailor Johnson was swayed by idea, by principle, and truth, and sincerity. He was right, he knew he was right, and he was unafraid. He would die for the right if needs be. He would be true to himself, sincere with his soul. And in this was portrayed the victory of the spirit over the flesh, the indomitability and moral grandeur of the soul, 
that knows no restriction and rises above time and space and matter with the surety and invincibleness born of nothing else than eternity and immortality but to return i noticed the anxious light in johnson's eyes but mistook it for the native shyness and embarrassment of the man the mate johansen stood away several feet to the side of him and fully three yards in front of him sat wolf larsen on one of the pivotal cabin chairs an appreciable pause fell after i had closed the doors and drawn the slide a pause that must have lasted fully a minute it was broken by wolf larsen Johnson he began my name is johnson sir the sailor boldly corrected well johnson then damn you can you guess why i have sent for you yes i know sir was the slow reply my work is done well the mate knows that and you know it sir so there cannot be any complaint and is that all Wolf Larsen queried, his voice soft and low and purring. I know you have it in for me, Johnson continued with his unalterable and ponderous slowness. You do not like me. You, you... Go on, Wolf Larsen prompted. Don't be afraid of my feelings. I am not afraid, the sailor retorted, a slight angry flush rising through his sunburn if i speak not fast it is because i have not been from the old country as long as you you do not like me because i am too much of a man that is why sir you are too much of a man for ship discipline if that is what you mean and if you know what i mean was wolf larsen's retort i know english and i know what you mean sir johnson answered his flush deepening at the slur on his knowledge of the English language. Johnson, Wolf Larsen said with an air of dismissing all that had gone before as introductory to the main business in hand, I understand you're not quite satisfied with those oilskins. No, I am not. They are no good, sir. And you've been shooting off your mouth about them. I say what I think, sir the sailor answered courageously not failing at the same time in ship courtesy which demanded that sir be appended to each speech he made it was at this moment that i chanced to glance at johansen his big fists were clenching and unclenching and his face was positively fiendish so malignantly did he look at johnson i noticed a black discoloration still faintly visible under johansen's eye a mark of the thrashing he had received a few nights before from the sailor. For the first time I began to divine that something terrible was about to be enacted. What? I could not imagine. Do you know what happens to men who say what you've said about my slop chest and me? Wolf Larsen was demanding. I know, sir, was the answer. What? Wolf Larsen demanded, sharply and imperatively what you and the mate there are going to do to me sir look at him hump wolf larsen said to me 
Look at this bit of animated dust, this aggregation of matter that moves and breathes, and defies me, and thoroughly believes itself to be compounded of something good, that is impressed with certain human fictions, such as righteousness and honesty, and that will live up to them in spite of all personal discomforts and menaces. What do you think of him, Hump? What do you think of him? I think that he is a better man than you are, I answered, impelled somehow with a desire to draw upon myself a portion of the wrath I felt was about to break upon his head. His human fictions, as you choose to call them, make for nobility and manhood. You have no fictions, no dreams, no ideals. You are a pauper. He nodded his head with a savage pleasantness. Quite true, Hump quite true. I have no fictions that make for nobility and manhood. A living dog is better than a dead lion, say I with the preacher. My only doctrine is the doctrine of expediency, and it makes for surviving. This bit of the ferment we call Johnson, when he is no longer a bit of the ferment, only dust and ashes, will have no more nobility than any dust and ashes while I shall still be alive and roaring. Do you know what I am going to do? He questioned. I shook my head. Well, I am going to exercise my prerogative of roaring and show you how fares nobility. Watch me. Three yards away from Johnson he was, and sitting down. Nine feet. And yet he left the chair in full leap without first gaining a standing position. He left the chair, just as he sat in it, squarely, springing from the sitting posture like a wild animal, a tiger, and like a tiger covered the intervening space. It was an avalanche of fury that Johnson strove vainly to fend off. He threw one arm down to protect the stomach, the other arm up to protect the head, but Wolf Larsen's fist drove midway between on the chest, with a crushing, resounding impact. Johnson's breath, suddenly expelled, shot from his mouth, and as suddenly checked, with the forced, audible expiration of a man wielding an axe. He almost fell backward, and swayed from side to side in an effort to recover his balance. I cannot give the further particulars of the horrible scene that followed. It was too revolting. It turns me sick even now when I think of it. Johnson fought bravely enough, but he was no match for Wolf Larsen, much less for Wolf Larsen and the mate. It was frightful. I had not imagined a human being could endure so much and still live and struggle on. And struggle on Johnson did. Of course, there was no hope for him, not the slightest, and he knew it as well as I. But by the manhood that was in him, he could not cease from fighting for that manhood. It was too much for me to witness. I felt that I should lose my mind, and I ran up the companion stairs to open the doors and escape on deck. But Wolf Larsen, leaving his victim for the moment, and with one of his tremendous springs, gained my side and flung me into the far corner of the cabin. The phenomena of life, Hump, he girded at me. Stay and watch it. You may gather data on the immortality of the soul. 
Besides, you know, we can't hurt Johnson's soul. It's only the fleeting form we may demolish. It seemed centuries. Possibly it was no more than ten minutes that the beating continued. Wolf Larsen and Johansen were all about the poor fellow. They struck him with their fists, kicked him with their heavy shoes, knocked him down, and dragged him to his feet to knock him down again. His eyes were blinded so that he could not see, and the blood running from ears and nose and mouth turned the cabin into a shambles. And when he could no longer rise, they still continued to beat and kick him where he lay. Easy, Johansen. Easy as she goes, Wolf Larsen finally said. But the beast in the mate was up and rampant, and Wolf Larsen was compelled to brush him away with a backhanded sweep of the arm gentle enough apparently but which hurled johansen back like a cork driving his head against the wall with a crash he fell to the floor half stunned for the moment breathing heavily and blinking his eyes in a stupid sort of way jerk open the doors hump i was commanded i obeyed and the two brutes picked up the senseless man like a sack of rubbish and hove him clear up the companion stairs through the narrow doorway and out on deck the blood from his nose gushed in a scarlet stream over the feet of the helmsman who was none other than lewis his boatmate but lewis took and gave a spoke and gazed imperturbably into the binnacle not so was the conduct of george leach the erstwhile cabin boy fore and aft there was nothing that could have surprised us more than his consequent behavior he it was that came up on the poop without orders and dragged johnson forward where he set about dressing his wounds as well as he could and making him comfortable johnson as johnson was unrecognizable and not only that for his features as human features at all were unrecognizable so discolored and swollen had they become in the few minutes which had elapsed between the beginning of the beating and the dragging forward of the body but of Leach's behavior. By the time I had finished cleansing the cabin, he had taken care of Johnson. I had come up on deck for a breath of fresh air and to try to get some repose for my overwrought nerves. Wolf Larsen was smoking a cigar and examining the patent log which the ghost usually towed astern, but which had been hauled in for some purpose. Suddenly Leach's voice came to my ears. It was tense and hoarse with an overmastering rage. I turned and saw him standing just beneath the break of the poop, on the port side of the galley. His face was convulsed and white, his eyes were flashing, his clenched fists raised overhead. May God damn your soul to hell, Wolf Larsen! Only hell's too good for you, you coward! You murderer! You pig! was his opening salutation. I was thunderstruck. I looked for his instant annihilation, but it was not Wolf Larsen's whim to annihilate him. He sauntered slowly forward to the break of the poop, and, leaning his elbow on the corner of the cabin, gazed down thoughtfully and curiously at the excited boy. And the boy indicted Wolf Larsen as he had never been indicted before. The sailors assembled in a fearful group just outside the forecastle scuttle and watched and listened. 
the hunters piled pell-mell out of the steerage but as leech's tirade continued i saw that there was no levity in their faces even they were frightened not at the boy's terrible words but at his terrible audacity it did not seem possible that any living creature could thus beard wolf larsen in his teeth i know for myself that i was shocked into admiration of the boy and i saw in him the splendid invincibleness of immortality rising above the flesh and the fears of the flesh as in the prophets of old to condemn unrighteousness and such condemnation he held forth wolf larsen's soul naked to the scorn of men he rained upon it curses from God and high heaven, and withered it with a heat of invective that savored of a medieval excommunication of the Catholic Church. He ran the gamut of denunciation, rising to heights of wrath that were sublime and almost godlike, and from sheer exhaustion sinking to the vilest and most indecent abuse. His rage was a madness. His lips were flecked with a soapy froth, and sometimes he choked and gurgled and became inarticulate. And through it all, calm and impassive, leaning on his elbow and gazing down, Wolf Larsen seemed lost in a great curiosity. This wild stirring of yeasty life, this terrific revolt and defiance of matter that moved, perplexed and interested him. Each moment I looked, and everybody looked for him to leap upon the boy and destroy him. But it was not his whim. His cigar went out, and he continued to gaze silently and curiously. Leech had worked himself into an ecstasy of impotent rage. Pig! 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 He was reiterating at the top of his lungs. Why don't you come down and kill me, you murderer? You can't do it. I ain't afraid. There's no one to stop you. Damn sight better dead and out of your reach than alive and in your clutches. Come on, you coward. Kill me. Kill me. Kill me. It was at this stage that Thomas Mugridge's erratic soul brought him into the scene. He had been listening at the galley door, but he now came out, ostensibly to fling some scraps over the side, but obviously to see the killing he was certain would take place. He smirked greasily up into the face of Wolf Larsen, who seemed not to see him. But the cockney was unabashed, though mad, stark mad. He turned to Leech, saying, Such language! Shocking! Leech's rage was no longer impotent. Here at last was something ready to hand, and for the first time since the stabbing, the cockney had appeared outside the galley without his knife. The words had barely left his mouth when he was knocked down by Leech. Three times he struggled to his feet, striving to gain the galley, and each time was knocked down. "'Oh, Lord!' he cried. "'Help! Help! Take him away, can't you? Take him away!' The hunters laughed from sheer relief. Tragedy had dwindled. The farce had begun. The sailors now crowded boldly aft, grinning and shuffling, to watch the pummeling of the hated cockney. And even I felt a great joy surge up within me. I confess that I delighted in this beating Leech was giving to Thomas Mugridge, though it was as terrible almost as the one Mugridge had caused to be given to Johnson. 
but the expression of Wolf Larsen's face never changed. He did not change his position either, but continued to gaze down with a great curiosity. For all his pragmatic certitude, it seemed as if he watched the play and movement of life in the hope of discovering something more about it, of discerning in its maddest writhings a something which had hitherto escaped him, the key to its mystery, as it were, which would make all clear and plain. But the beating! It was quite similar to the one I had witnessed in the cabin. The cockney strove in vain to protect himself from the infuriated boy, and in vain he strove to gain the shelter of the cabin. He rolled toward it, groveled toward it, fell toward it when he was knocked down, but blow followed blow with bewildering rapidity. He was knocked about like a shuttlecock, until finally, like Johnson, he was beaten and kicked as he lay helpless on the deck. And no one interfered. Leech could have killed him, but having evidently filled the measure of his vengeance, he drew away from his prostrate foe, who was whimpering and wailing in a puppyish sort of way, and walked forward. But these two affairs were only the opening events of the day's program. In the afternoon, Smoke and Henderson fell foul of each other, and a fusillade of shots came up from the steerage, followed by a stampede of the other four hunters for the deck. A column of thick, acrid smoke, the kind always made by black powder, was arising through the open companionway, and down through it leaped Wolf Larsen. The sound of blows and scuffling came to our ears. Both men were wounded, and he was thrashing them both for having disobeyed his orders and crippled themselves in advance of the hunting season. In fact, they were badly wounded, and, having thrashed them, he proceeded to operate upon them in a rough surgical fashion, and to dress their wounds. I served as assistant, while he probed and cleansed the passages made by the bullets, and I saw the two men endure his crude surgery without anesthetics and with no more to uphold them than a stiff tumbler of whiskey. Then, in the first dog watch, trouble came to a head in the forecastle. It took its rise out of the tittle-tattle and tail-bearing which had been the cause of Johnson's beating and from the noise we heard and from the sight of the bruised men next day it was patent that half the forecastle had soundly drubbed the other half the second dog watch and the day were wound up by a fight between johansen and the lean yankee-looking hunter latimer it was caused by remarks of latimer's concerning the noises made by the mate in his sleep and though johansen was whipped he kept the steerage awake for the rest of the night while he blissfully slumbered and fought the fight over and over again. As for myself, I was oppressed with nightmare. The day had been like some horrible dream. Brutality had followed brutality, and flaming passions and cold-blooded cruelty had driven men to seek one another's lives and to strive to hurt and maim and destroy. My nerves were shocked. My mind itself was shocked. All my days had been passed in comparative ignorance of the animality of men. 
In fact, I had known life only in its intellectual phases. Brutality I had experienced, but it was the brutality of the intellect, the cutting sarcasm of Charlie Furuseth, the cruel epigrams and occasional harsh witticisms of the fellows at the Bibliot, and the nasty remarks of some of the professors during my undergraduate days. But that was all. But that men should wreak their anger on others by the bruising of the flesh and the letting of blood was something strangely and fearfully new to me. Not for nothing had I been called Sissy Van Waden, I thought, as I tossed restlessly on my bunk between one nightmare and another, and it seemed to me that my innocence of the realities of life had been complete indeed. I laughed bitterly to myself, and seemed to find in Wolf Larsen's forbidding philosophy a more adequate explanation of life than I found in my own. And I was frightened when I became conscious of the trend of my thought. The continual brutality around me was degenerative in its effect. It bid fair to destroy for me all that was best and brightest in life. My reason dictated that the beating Thomas Mugridge had received was an ill thing, and yet for the life of me I could not prevent my soul joying in it, and even while I was oppressed by the enormity of my sin, for sin it was, I chuckled with an insane delight. I was no longer Humphrey Van Waden. I was Hump, cabin boy on the schooner Ghost. Wolf Larsen was my captain. Thomas Mugridge and the rest were my companions, and I was receiving repeated impresses from the die which had stamped them all. End of chapter 12「Chapter 13 of the Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter 13. For three days I did my own work, and Thomas Mugridge's too, and I flatter myself that I did his work well. I know that it won Wolf Larsen's approval, while the sailors beamed with satisfaction during the brief time my regime lasted. "'The first clean bite since I come aboard,' Harrison said to me at the galley door as he returned the dinner pots and pans from the forecastle. "'Somehow Tommy's grub always tastes of grease, stale grease.' and I reckon he ain't changed his shirt since he left Frisco. I know he hasn't, I answered. And I'll bet he sleeps in it, Harrison answered. And you won't lose, I agreed. The same shirt, and he hasn't had it off once in all this time. But three days was all Wolf Larsen allowed him in which to recover from the effects of the beating. On the fourth day, lame and sore, scarcely able to see, so closed were his eyes, he was hailed from his bunk by the nape of the neck and set to his duty. He sniffed and wept, but Wolf Larsen was pitiless. "'And see that you serve no more slops,' was his parting injunction. "'No more grease and dirt, mind. And a clean shirt occasionally, or you'll get a toe over the side. Understand?' Thomas Mugridge crawled weakly across the galley floor, and a short lurch of the ghost sent him staggering. In attempting to recover himself, he reached for the iron railing which surrounded the stove and kept the pots from sliding off, 
but he missed the railing and his hand with his weight behind it landed squarely on the hot surface there was a sizzle and odor of burning flesh and a sharp cry of pain oh god god what have i done he wailed sitting down in the coal box and nursing his new hurt by rocking back and forth why has all this come on me it makes me fast sick it does and i try so hard to go through life honest and hurt nobody the tears were running down his puffed and discolored cheeks and his face was drawn with pain a savage expression flitted across it ow i ate him ow i ate him he gritted out whom i asked but the poor wretch was weeping again over his misfortunes less difficult it was to guess whom he hated than whom he did not hate for i had come to see a malignant devil in him which impelled him to hate all the world i sometimes thought that he hated even himself so grotesquely had life dealt with him and so monstrously at such moments a great sympathy welled up within me and i felt shame that i had ever joyed in his discomfiture or pain life had been unfair to him it had played him a scurvy trick when it fashioned him into the thing he was and it had played him scurvy tricks ever since what chance had he to be anything else than he was and as though answering my unspoken thought he wailed i never had a chance not half a chance who is there to send me to school or put tommy in me hungry belly or wipe my bloody nose for me when i was a kitty whoever did anything for me eh who i say never mind tommy i said placing a soothing hand on his shoulder cheer up it'll all come right in the end you've long years before you and you can make anything you please of yourself it's a lie it's a bloody lie he shouted in my face flinging off the hand it's a lie and you know it i'm already made and made out of leavings and scraps it's all right for you ump you was born a gentleman you never knew what it was like to go hungry to cry yourself asleep with your little belly gnawing and gnawing like a rat inside you it can't come right if i was president in the united states tomorrow i would have filled my belly for one time when i was a kitty and it went empty how could it i say i was born to suffering and sorrow i've had more cruel suffering than any ten men i have i've been in hospital left me bleeding life i've had the fever in aspirin well in havana in new orleans i near died of the scurvy and was rotten with it six months in barbados smallpox in honolulu two broken legs in shanghai pneumonia in unalaska tree busted ribs and my insides all twisted in frisco and here i am now look at me look at me my ribs kicked loose from my back again i'll be coughing blood before right bells how can it be made up to me i ask who's going to do it god how oh, god must have aided me when he signed me on for a voyage in this blooming world of his this tirade against destiny went on for an hour or more 
and then he buckled to his work limping and groaning and in his eyes a great hatred for all created things his diagnosis was correct however for he was seized with occasional sicknesses during which he vomited blood and suffered great pain and as he said it seemed god hated him too much to let him die for he ultimately grew better and waxed more malignant than ever several days more passed before johnson crawled on deck and went about his work in a half-hearted way he was still a sick man and i more than once observed him creeping painfully aloft to a topsail or drooping wearily as he stood at the wheel but still worse it seemed that his spirit was broken he was abject before wolf larsen and almost groveled to johansen not so was the conduct of leech he went about the deck like a tiger cub glaring his hatred openly at wolf larsen and johansen i'll do for you yet you slab-footed swede i heard him say to johansen one night on deck the mate cursed him in the darkness and the next moment some missile struck the galley a sharp rap there was more cursing and a mocking laugh and when all was quiet i stole outside and found a heavy knife embedded over an inch in the solid wood a few minutes later the mate came fumbling about in search of it but i returned it privily to leech next day he grinned when i handed it over yet it was a grin that contained more sincere thanks than a multitude of the verbosities of speech common to the members of my own class unlike anyone else in the ship's company i now found myself with no quarrels on my hands and in the good graces of all the hunters possibly no more than tolerated me though none of them disliked me while smoke and henderson convalescent under a deck awning and swinging day and night in their hammocks assured me that i was better than any hospital nurse and that they would not forget me at the end of the voyage when they were paid off as though i stood in need of their money i who could have bought them out bag and baggage and the schooner and its equipment a score of times over but upon me had devolved the task of tending their wounds and pulling them through and i did my best by them wolf larsen underwent another bad attack of headache which lasted two days he must have suffered severely for he called me in and obeyed my commands like a sick child but nothing i could do seemed to relieve him at my suggestion however he gave up smoking and drinking though why such a magnificent animal as he should have headaches at all puzzles me tis the hand of god i'm telling you is the way lewis sees it tis a visitation for his black heart deeds and there's more behind and coming or else or else i prompted god is nodding and not doing his duty though it's me i shouldn't say it i was mistaken when i said that i was in the good graces of all not only does thomas muggeridge continue to hate me but he has discovered a new reason for hating me it took me no little while to puzzle it out but i finally discovered that it was because i was more luckily born than he gentlemen born he put it and still no more dead men I twitted Lewis, when Smoke and Henderson, side by side, in friendly conversation, took their first exercise on deck. Lewis surveyed me with his shrewd gray eyes and shook his head portentously. 
she's a-comin i tell you and it'll be sheets and halyards stand by all hands when she begins to howl i've had the feel of it this long time and i can feel it now as plainly as i feel the rigging of a dark night she's close she's close who goes first i queried not fat old lewis i promise you he laughed for tis in the bones of me i know that come this time next year i'll be gazing in the old mother's eyes weary with watching of the sea for the five sons she gave to it what's he been sighing to you thomas mugridge demanded a moment later that he's going home some day to see his mother i answered diplomatically i never had none was the cockney's comment as he gazed with lustreless hopeless eyes into mine end of chapter thirteen Chapter Fourteen of The Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter Fourteen. It has dawned upon me that I have never placed a proper valuation upon womankind. For that matter, though not amative to any considerable degree so far as I have discovered, I was never outside the atmosphere of women until now my mother and sisters were always about me and i was always trying to escape them for they worried me to distraction with their solicitude for my health and with their periodic inroads on my den when my orderly confusion upon which i prided myself was turned into worse confusion and less order though it looked neat enough to the eye i never could find anything when they had departed but now alas how welcome would have been the feel of their presence the frau frau and swish swish of their skirts which i had so cordially detested i am sure if i ever get home that i shall never be irritable with them again they may dose me and doctor me morning noon and night and dust and sweep and put my den to rights every minute of the day and i shall only lean back and survey it all and be thankful in that i am possessed of a mother and some several sisters all of which has set me wondering where are the mothers of these twenty and odd men on the ghost it strikes me as unnatural and unhealthful that men should be totally separated from women and heard through the world by themselves coarseness and savagery are the inevitable results then they would be capable of softness and tenderness and sympathy these men about me should have wives and sisters and daughters then they would be capable of softness and tenderness and sympathy as it is not one of them is married in years and years not one of them has been in contact with a good woman or within the influence or redemption which irresistibly radiates from such a creature there is no balance in their lives their masculinity which in itself is of the brute has been overdeveloped the other and spiritual side of their natures has been dwarfed atrophied in fact they are a company of celibates grinding harshly against one another and growing daily more calloused from the grinding it seems to me impossible sometimes that they ever had mothers it would appear that they are a half-brute, half-human species, a race apart, wherein there is no such thing as sex, that they are hatched out by the sun like turtle eggs or receive life in some similar and sordid fashion. 
and that all their days they fester in brutality and viciousness, and in the end die as unlovely as they have lived. Rendered curious by this new direction of ideas, I talked with Johansen last night, the first superfluous words with which he has favored me since the voyage began. He left Sweden when he was eighteen, is now thirty-eight, and, in all the intervening time, has not been home once. He had met a townsman a couple of years before, in some sailing boarding-house in Chile, so that he knew his mother to be still alive. "'She must be a pretty old woman now,' he said, staring meditatively into the binnacle, and then jerking a sharp glance at Harrison, who was steering a point off the course. "'When did you last write to her?' He performed his mental arithmetic aloud. Eighty-one? No. Eighty-two, eh? No. Eighty-three. Yes, eighty-three. Ten years ago. From some little port in Madagascar. I was trading. You see, he went on as though addressing his neglected mother across half the girth of the earth. Each year I was going home. So what was the good to write? It was only a year. And each year something happened and I did not go. But I am mate now, and when I pay off at Frisco, maybe with five hundred dollars, I will ship myself on a windjammer round the Horn to Liverpool, which will give me more money, and then I will pay my passage from there home. Then she will not do any more work. But does she work now? How old is she? About seventy, he answered, and then boastingly, we work from the time we are born until we die in my country. That's why we live so long. I'll live to be a hundred. I shall never forget this conversation. The words were the last I ever heard him utter. Perhaps they were the last he did utter, too. For, going down into the cabin to turn in, I decided that it was too stuffy to sleep below. It was a calm night. We were out of the trades, and the ghost was forging ahead barely a knot an hour. So I tucked a blanket and pillow under my arm and went up on deck. As I passed between Harrison and the binnacle, which was built into the top of the cabin, I noticed that he was this time fully three points off. Thinking that he was asleep and wishing him to escape reprimand or worse, I spoke to him. But he was not asleep. His eyes were wide and staring. He seemed greatly perturbed, unable to reply to me. "'What's the matter?' I asked. "'Are you sick?' He shook his head, and with a deep sign, as of awakening, caught his breath. "'You'd better get on your course, then,' I chided. He put a few strokes over, and I watched the compass card swing slowly to north-northwest and steady itself with slight oscillations. I took a fresh hold on my bedclothes and was preparing to start on when some movement caught my eye and I looked astern to the rail. A sinewy hand, dripping with water, was clutching the rail. A second hand took form in the darkness beside it. I watched, fascinated. What visitant from the gloom of the deep was I to behold? Whatever it was, I knew that it was climbing aboard by the log line. I saw ahead the hair wet and straight shape itself, and then the unmistakable eyes and face of Wolf Larsen. His right cheek was red with blood, which flowed from some wound in the head. He drew himself inboard with a quick effort and arose to his feet, glancing swiftly as he did so at the man at the wheel, as though to assure himself of his identity, and that there was nothing to fear from him. The seawater was streaming from him. It made little audible gurgles which distracted me. 
as he stepped toward me i shrank back instinctively for i saw that in his eyes which spelled death all right hump he said in a low voice where's the mate i shook my head johansen he called softly johansen where is he he demanded of harrison the young fellow seemed to have recovered his composure for he answered steadily enough i don't know sir i saw him go for it a little while ago so did i go forward but you will observe that i didn't come back the way i went can you explain it you must have been overboard sir shall i look for him in the steerage sir i asked wolf larsen shook his head you wouldn't find him hump but you'll do come on never mind your bedding leave it where it is i followed at his heels there was nothing stirring amidships those cursed hunters was his comment too damn fat and lazy to stand a four-hour watch but on a forecastle head we found three sailors asleep he turned them over and looked at their faces they composed the watch on deck and it was the ship's custom in good weather to let the watch sleep with the exception of the officer the helmsman and the lookout who's lookout he demanded me sir answered holyoke one of the deep-water sailors a slight tremor in his voice i winked off just this very minute sir i'm sorry sir it won't happen again did you hear or see anything on deck no sir i but wolf larsen had turned away with a snort of disgust leaving the sailor rubbing his eyes with surprise at having been let off so easily softly now wolf larsen warned me in a whisper as he doubled his body into the forecastle scuttle and prepared to descend i followed with a quaking heart what was to happen i knew no more than i did know what had happened but blood had been shed and it was through no whim of wolf larsen that he had gone over the side with his scalp laid open besides johansen was missing it was my first descent into the forecastle and i shall not soon forget my impression of it caught as i stood on my feet at the bottom of the ladder built directly in the eyes of the schooner it was of the shape of a triangle along the three sides of which stood the bunks in double tier twelve of them it was no larger than a hall bedroom in grub street and yet twelve men were herded into it to eat and sleep and carry on all the functions of living my bedroom at home was not large yet it could have contained a dozen similar forecastles and taking into consideration the height of the ceiling a score at least it smelled sour and musty and by the dim light of the swinging sea lamp i saw every bit of available wall space hung deep with sea boots oilskins and garments clean and dirty of various sorts these swung back and forth with every roll of the vessel giving rise to a brushing sound as of trees against a roof or wall somewhere a boot thumped loudly and at irregular intervals against the wall and though it was a mild night on the sea there was a continual chorus of the creaking timbers and bulkheads and of abysmal noises beneath the flooring the sleepers did not mind there were eight of them the two watches below and the air was thick with the warmth and odor of their breathing and the ear was filled with the noise of their snoring and of their sighs and half groans tokens plain of the rest of the animal man but were they sleeping all of them or had they been sleeping 
This was evidently Wolf Larsen's quest, to find the men who appeared to be asleep and who were not asleep, or who had not been asleep very recently. And he went about it in a way that reminded me of a story out of Boccaccio. He took the sea-lamp from its swinging frame and handed it to me. He began at the first bunks forward on the starboard side. In the top one lay Ofti Ofti, a Kanaka and splendid seaman, so named by his mates. He was asleep on his back and breathing as placidly as a woman. One arm was under his head, the other lay on top of the blankets. Wolf Larsen put thumb and forefinger to the wrist and counted the pulse. In the midst of it the Kanaka roused. He awoke as gently as he slept. There was no movement of the body whatever. The eyes only moved. They flashed wide open, big and black, and stared unblinking into our faces. Wolf Larsen put his finger to his lips as a sign for silence, and the eyes closed again. In the lower bunk lay Lewis, grossly fat and warm and sweaty, asleep unfeignedly and sleeping laboriously. While Wolf Larsen held his wrist, he stirred uneasily, bowing his body so that for a moment it rested on shoulders and heels. His lips moved, and he gave voice to this enigmatic utterance. A shilling's worth a quarter, but keep your lamps out for through penny bits, or the publicans'll shove em on you for sixpence. Then he rolled over on his side with a heavy, sobbing sigh, saying, A sixpence is a tanner and a shilling a bomb but what a pony is i don't know satisfied with the honesty of his and the kanaka's sleep wolf larsen passed on to the next two bunks on the starboard side occupied top and bottom as we saw in the light of the sea lamp by leech and johnson as wolf larsen bent down to the lower bunk to take johnson's pulse i standing erect and holding the lamp saw leech's head rise stealthily as he peered over the side of his bunk to see what was going on. He must have divined Wolf Larsen's trick and the sureness of detection, for the light was at once dashed from my hand and the forecastle was left in darkness. He must have leaped also at the same instant straight down upon Wolf Larsen. The first sounds were those of a conflict between a bull and a wolf. I heard a great infuriated bellow go up from Wolf Larsen, and from Leech a snarling that was desperate and blood-curdling. Johnson must have joined him immediately, so that his abject and groveling conduct on deck for the past few days had been no more than planned deception. I was so terror-stricken by this fight in the dark that I leaned against the ladder, trembling and unable to ascend, and upon me was that old sick at the pit of the stomach caused always by the spectacle of physical violence in this instance i could not see but i could hear the impact of the blows the soft crushing sound made by flesh striking forcibly against flesh then there was the crashing about of the entwined bodies the labored breathing the short quick gasps of sudden pain there must have been more men in the conspiracy to murder the captain and mate for by the sounds i knew that leech and johnson had been quickly reinforced by some of their mates get a knife somebody leech was shouting pound him on the head mash his brains out was johnson's cry but after his first bellow wolf larsen made no noise he was fighting grimly and silently for life he was sore beset 
down at the very first he had been unable to gain his feet and for all of his tremendous strength i felt that there was no hope for him the force with which they struggled was vividly impressed on me for i was knocked down by their surging bodies and badly bruised but in the confusion i managed to crawl into an empty lower bunk out of the way all hands we've got em we've got em i could hear leech crying who demanded those who had been really asleep and who had wakened to they knew not what it's the bloody mate was leech's crafty answer strained from him in a smothered sort of way this was greeted with whoops of joy and from then on wolf larsen had seven strong men on top of him lewis i believe taking no part in it the forecastle was like an angry hive of bees aroused by some marauder what ho below there i heard latimer shout down the scuttle too cautious to descend into the inferno of passion he could hear raging beneath him in the darkness won't somebody get a knife oh won't somebody get a knife leech pleaded in the first interval of comparative silence the number of the assailants was a cause of confusion they blocked their own efforts while wolf larsen with but a single purpose achieved his this was to fight his way across the floor to the ladder though in total darkness i followed his progress by its sound no man less than a giant could have done what he did once he had gained the foot of the ladder step by step by the might of his arms a whole pack of men striving to drag him back and down he drew his body up from the floor till he stood erect and then step by step hand and foot he slowly struggled up the ladder the very last of all i saw for latimer having finally gone for a lantern held it so that its light shone down the scuttle wolf larsen was nearly to the top though i could not see him all that was visible was the mass of men fastened upon him it squirmed about like some huge many-legged spider and swayed back and forth to the regular roll of the vessel and still step by step with long intervals between the mass ascended once it tottered about to fall back but the broken hold was regained and it still went up who is it latimer cried in the rays of the lantern i could see his perplexed face peering down larsen i heard a muffled voice from within the mass latimer reached down with his free hand i saw a hand shoot up to clasp his latimer pulled and the next couple of steps were made with a rush then wolf larsen's other hand reached up and clutched the end of the scuttle the mass swung clear of the ladder the men still clinging to their escaping foe they began to drop off to be brushed off against the sharp edge of the scuttle to be knocked off by the legs which were now kicking powerfully leech was the last to go falling sheer back from the top of the scuttle and striking on head and shoulders upon his sprawling mates beneath wolf larsen and the lantern disappeared and we were left in darkness End of chapter 14
boat steerer in Standish's boat, in which Harrison was puller. You'll find it knocking about by the bits, Leach said, sitting down on the edge of the bunk in which I was concealed. There was a fumbling and a scratching of matches, and the sea lamp flared up dim and smoky, and in its weird light bare-legged men moved about nursing their bruises and caring for their hurts. Ufti Ufti laid hold of Parson's thumb, pulling it out stoutly and snapping it back into place. I noticed at the same time that the Kanaka's knuckles were laid open clear across and to the bone. He exhibited them exposing beautiful white teeth in a grin as he did so, and explaining that the wounds had come from striking Wolf Larsen in the mouth. "'So it was you, you black beggar,' belligerently demanded one Kelly, an Irish-American and a longshoreman, making his first trip to sea, and boat-puller for Kerfoot. As he made the demand, he spat out a mouthful of blood and teeth and shoved his pugnacious face close to Ufti Ufti. The Kanaka leaped backwards to his bunk, to return with a second leap, flourishing a long knife. Oh, go lay down, you make me tired, Leech interfered. He was evidently, for all his youth and inexperience, cock of the forecastle. Go on, you, Kelly, you leave Ufti alone. How in hell did he know it was you in the dark? Kelly subsided with some muttering, and the Kanaka flashed his white teeth in a grateful smile. He was a beautiful creature, almost feminine in the pleasing lines of his figure, and there was a softness and dreaminess in his large eyes which seemed to contradict his well-earned reputation of strife and action. "'How did he get away?' Johnson asked. He was sitting on the side of his bunk, the whole pose of his figure indicating utter dejection and hopelessness. He was still breathing heavily from the exertion he had made. His shirt had been ripped entirely from him in the struggle, and blood from a gash in his cheek was flowing down his naked chest, marking a red path across his white thigh and dripping to the floor. "'Because he is the devil, as I told you before,' was Leech's answer, and thereat he was on his feet and raging his disappointment with tears in his eyes. "'And not one of you to get a knife!' was his unceasing lament. But the rest of the hands had a lively fear of consequences to come, and gave no heed to him. "'How will he know which was which?' Kelly asked, and as he went on, he looked murderously about him. "'Unless one of us pitches.' "'He'll know as soon as he claps eyes on us,' Parson replied. "'One look at you would be enough.' "'Tell him the deck flopped up and gouged your teeth out of your jaw,' Lewis grinned. He was the only man who was not out of his bunk, and he was jubilant in that he possessed no bruises to advertise that he had had a hand in the night's work. "'Just wait till he gets a glimpse of your mugs tomorrow, the gang of you,' he chuckled. "'We'll say we thought it was the mate,' said one. And another, "'I know what I'll say. Then I hear the row, jumped out of my bunk, got a jolly good crack on the jaw for my pains, and sailed in myself.' couldn't tell who or what it was in the dark, and just hit out. And it was me you hit, of course, Kelly seconded, his face brightening for the moment. Leach and Johnson took no part in the discussion, and it was plain to see that their mates looked upon them as men for whom the worst was inevitable, who were beyond hope and already dead. Leach stood their fears and reproaches for some time. Then he broke out, 
You make me tired. A nice lot of gazabas you are. If you talked less with your mouth and did something with your hand, he'd have been done with by now. Why couldn't one of you, just one of you, get me a knife when I sung out? You make me sick. A beefing and bellering round, as though he'd kill you when he gets you. You know damn well he won't. Can't afford to. No shipping masters or beachcombers over here. And he wants you in his business, and he wants you bad. Who's to pull your steer or sail ship if he loses you? It's me and Johnson have to face the music. Get into your bunks now and shut your faces. I want to get some sleep. That's all right, all right, Parsons spoke up. Maybe he won't do for us. But mark my words, he'll be an icebox to this ship from now on. All the while, I had been apprehensive concerning my own predicament. What would happen to me when these men discovered my presence? I could never fight my way out as Wolf Larsen had done, and at this moment Latimer called down the scuttles. Hum, the old man wants you. He ain't down here, Parsons called back. Yes, he is, I said, sliding out of the bunk and striving my hardest to keep my voice steady and bold. The sailors looked at me in consternation. Fear was strong in their faces, and the devilishness which comes of fear. I'm coming, I shouted up to Latimer. No, you don't, Kelly cried, stepping between me and the ladder, his right hand shaped into a veritable strangler's clutch. You damn little sneak. I'll shut your mouth. Let him go, Leach commanded. Not on your life, was the angry retort. Leach never changed his position on the edge of the bunk. Let him go, I say, he repeated, but this time his voice was gritty and metallic. The Irishman wavered. I made to step by him, and he stood aside. When I had gained the ladder, I turned to the circle of brutal and malignant faces peering at me through the semi-darkness. A sudden and deep sympathy welled up in me. I remembered the Cockney's way of putting it, how God must have hated them that they should be tortured so. I have seen and heard nothing, believe me, I said quietly. I tell you, he's all right, I could hear Leach saying as I went up the ladder. He don't like the old man no more than you or me. I found Wolf Larsen in the cabin, stripped and bloody, waiting for me. He greeted me with one of his whimsical smiles. Come, get to work, doctor. The signs are favorable for an extensive practice this voyage. I don't know what the ghost would have been without you. And if I could only cherish such noble sentiments, I would tell you her master is deeply grateful. I knew the run of the simple medicine chest the ghost carried, and while I was heating water on the cabin stove and getting the things ready for dressing his wounds, he moved about, laughing and chatting and examining his hurts with a calculating eye. I had never before seen him stripped, and the sight of his body quite took my breath away. It has never been my weakness to exalt the flesh far from it. But there is enough of the artist in me to appreciate its wonder. I must say that I was fascinated by the perfect lines of Wolf Larsen's figure, and by what I may term the terrible beauty of it. I had noted the men in the forecastle. Powerfully muscled, though some of them were, there had been something wrong with all of them, an insufficient development here, an undue development there, a twist or a crook that destroyed symmetry legs too short or too long, or too much sinew or bone exposed, or too little. 
Ufti Ufti had been the only one whose lines were at all pleasing, while in so far as they pleased, that far had they been what I should call feminine. But Wolf Larsen was the man type, the masculine, and almost a god in his perfectness. As he moved about, or raised his arms, the great muscles leapt and moved under the satiny skin. I have forgotten to say that the bronze ended with his face. His body, thanks to his Scandinavian stock, was fair as the fairest woman's. I remember his putting his hand up to feel of the wound on his head, and my watching the biceps move like a living thing under its white sheath. It was the biceps that had nearly crushed out my life once that I had seen strike so many killing blows. I could not take my eyes from him. I stood motionless, a roll of antiseptic cotton in my hand, unwinding and spilling itself down to the floor. He noticed me, and I became conscious that I was staring at him. "'God made you well,' I said. "'Did he?' he answered. "'I have often thought so myself, and wondered why.' "'Purpose,' I began. "'Utility,' he interrupted. "'This body was made for use.' These muscles were made to grip and tear and destroy living things that get between me and life. But have you thought of the other living things? They too have muscles, of one kind and another, made to grip and tear and destroy. And when they come between me and life, I outgrip them, out-tear them, out-destroy them. Purpose does not explain that. Utility does. It is not beautiful. I protested. Life isn't, you mean, he smiled. Yet you say I was made well. Do you see this? He braced his legs and feet, pressing the cabin floor with his toes in a clutching sort of way. Knots and ridges and mounds of muscles writhed and bunched under the skin. Feel them, he commanded. They were hard as iron. And I observed also that his whole body had unconsciously drawn itself together, tense and alert, that muscles were softly crawling and shaping about the hips, along the back, and across the shoulders, that the arms were slightly lifted, their muscles contracting, the fingers crooking till the hands were like talons, and that even the eyes had changed expression, and into them were coming watchfulness and measurement and a light none other than a battle. Stability, equilibrium, he said, relaxing on the instant and sinking his body back into repose. Feet with which to clutch the ground, legs to stand on and to help withstand, while with arms and hands, teeth and nails, I struggle to kill and to be not killed. Purpose? Utility is the better word. I did not argue. I had seen the mechanism of the primitive fighting beast, and I was as strongly impressed as if I had seen the engines of a great battleship, or Atlantic liner. I was surprised, considering the fierce struggle in the forecastle at the superficiality of his hurts, and I pride myself that I dressed them dexterously. With the exception of several bad wounds, the rest were merely severe bruises and lacerations. The blow which he had received before going overboard had laid his scalp open several inches. This, under his direction, I cleansed and sewed together, 
having first shaved the edges of the wound. Then the calf of his leg was badly lacerated, and looked as though it had been mangled by a bulldog. Some sailor, he told me, had laid hold of it by his teeth at the beginning of the fight, and hung on and been dragged to the top of the forecastle ladder until he was kicked loose. "'By the way, Hump, as I have remarked, you are a handy man,' Wolf Larsen began when my work was done. "'As you know, we're short a mate. Hereafter you shall stand watches, receive seventy-five dollars per month, and be addressed fore and aft as Mr. Van Waden. I, I don't understand navigation, you know, I gasped. Not necessary at all. I really do not care to sit in the high places, I objected. I find life precarious enough in my present humble situation. I have no experience. Mediocrity, you see, has its compensations. He smiled as though it were all settled. I won't be mate on this hell ship, I cried defiantly. I saw his face grow hard, and the merciless glitter come into his eyes. He walked to the door of his room, saying, And now, Mr. Van Waden, good night. Good night, Mr. Larson, I answered weakly. End of chapter 15、chapter 16 of The Sea Wolf This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter 16. I cannot say that the position of mate carried with it anything more joyful than that there were no more dishes to wash. I was ignorant of the simplest duties of mate, and would have fared badly indeed had the sailors not sympathized with me. I knew nothing of the minutiae of ropes and rigging. Of the trimming and setting of sails. But the sailors took pains to put me to rights, Lewis proving an especially good teacher, and I had little trouble with those under me. With the hunters, it was otherwise. Familiar in varying degree with the sea, they took me as a sort of joke. In truth, it was a joke to me that I, the veriest landsman, should be filling the office of mate. But to be taken as a joke by others was a different matter. I made no complaint, but Wolf Larsen demanded the most punctilious sea etiquette in my case, far more than poor Johansen had ever received, and at the expense of several rows, threats, and much grumbling, he brought the hunters to time. I was Mr. Van Waden, fore and aft, and it was only unofficially that Wolf Larsen himself ever addressed me as Hulk. It was amusing. Perhaps the wind would haul a few points while we were at dinner, and as I left the table, he would say, Mr. Van Wade, will you kindly put about on the port tack? And I would go on deck, beckon Lewis to me, and learn from him what was to be done. Then a few minutes later, having digested his instructions and thoroughly mastered the maneuver, I would proceed to issue my orders. I remember an early instance of this kind when Wolf Larsen appeared on the scene. Just as I had begun to give orders, he smoked his cigar and looked on quietly till the thing was accomplished, and then paced aft by my side along the weather poop. Hump,、huh? he said, I beg pardon, Mr. Van Wade, I congratulate you. I think you can now fire your father's legs back into the grave to him.
you've discovered your own and learned to stand on them a little rope work sail making and experience with storms and such things and by the end of the voyage you could ship on any coasting schooner it was during this period between the death of johansen and the arrival on the sealing grounds that i passed my pleasantest hours on the ghost wolf larsen was quite considerate the sailors helped me and i was no longer in irritating contact with thomas mugridge and i make free to say as the days went by that i found i was taking a certain secret pride in myself fantastic as the situation was a landlubber second in command i was nevertheless carrying it off well and during that brief time i was proud of myself and i grew to love the heaving roll of the ghost under my feet as she wallowed north and west through the tropic sea to the islet where we filled our water casks but my happiness was not unalloyed it was comparative a period of less misery slipped in between a past of great miseries and a future of great miseries for the ghost so far as the seamen were concerned was a hell-ship of the worst description they never had a moment's rest or peace wolf larsen treasured against them the attempt on his life and the drubbing he had received in the forecastle and morning noon and night and all night as well he devoted himself to making life unlivable for them he knew well the psychology of the little thing and it was the little things by which he kept the crew worked up to the verge of madness i have seen harrison called from his bunk to put properly away a misplaced paintbrush and the two watches below hailed from their tired sleep to accompany him and see him do it a little thing truly but when multiplied by the thousand ingenious devices of such a mind the mental state of the men in the forecastle may be slightly comprehended of course much grumbling went on and little outbursts were continually occurring blows were struck and there were always two or three men nursing injuries at the hands of the human beast who was their master concerted action was impossible in face of the heavy arsenal of weapons carried in the steerage and cabin leach and johnson were the two particular victims of wolf larsen's diabolic temper and the look of profound melancholy which had settled on johnson's face and in his eyes made my heart bleed with leach it was different there was too much of the fighting beast in him he seemed possessed by an insatiable fury which gave no time for grief his lips had become distorted into a permanent snarl which at mere sight of wolf larsen broke out in sound horrible and menacing and i do believe unconsciously i have seen him follow wolf larsen about with his eyes like an animal its keeper while the animal-like snarl sounded deep in his throat and vibrated forth between his teeth i remember once on deck in bright day touching him on the shoulder as preliminary to giving an order his back was toward me and at the first feel of my hand he leaped upright in the air and away from me snarling and turning his head as he leaped he had for the moment mistaken me for the man he hated both he and johnson would have killed wolf larsen at the slightest opportunity but the opportunity never came wolf larsen was too wise for that and besides they had no adequate weapons with their fists alone they had no chance whatever time and again he fought it out with leech who fought back always like a wildcat 
tooth and nail at first until stretched exhausted or unconscious on the deck and he was never averse to another encounter all the devil that was in him challenged the devil in wolf larsen they had but to appear on deck at the same time when they would be at it cursing snarling striking and i have seen leech fling himself upon wolf larsen without warning or provocation once he threw his heavy sheath knife missing wolf larsen's throat by an inch another time he dropped a steel marlin spike from mizzen cross tree it was a difficult cast to make on a rolling ship but the sharp point of the spike whistling seventy-five feet through the air barely missed wolf larsen's head as he emerged from the cabin companionway and drove its length two inches and over into the solid deck planking still another time he stole into the steerage possessed himself of a loaded shotgun and was making a rush for the deck with it when caught by kerfoot and disarmed i often wondered why wolf larsen did not kill him and make an end of it but he only laughed and seemed to enjoy it there seemed a certain spice about it such as men must feel who take delight in making pets of ferocious animals it gives a thrill to life he explained to me when life is carried in one's hand man is a natural gambler and life is the biggest stake he can lay the greater the odds the greater the thrill why should i deny myself the joy of exciting leech's soul to fever pitch for that matter i do him a kindness the greatness of sensation is mutual he is living more royally than any man forward though he does not know it for he has what they have not purpose something to do and be done an all-absorbing end to strife to attain the desire to kill me the hope that he may kill me really hope he is living deep and high i doubt that he has ever lived so swiftly and keenly before and i honestly envy him sometimes when i see him raging at the summit of passion and sensibility oh but it is cowardly cowardly i cried you have all the advantage of the two of us you and i who is the greater coward he asked seriously if the situation is unpleasing you compromise with your conscience when you make yourself a party to it if you were really great really true to yourself you would join forces with leech and johnson but you are afraid you are afraid you want to live the life that is in you cries out that it must live no matter what the cost so you live ignominiously untrue to the best you dream of sinning against your whole pitiful little code and if there were a hell heading your soul straight for it bah i play the braver part i do no sin for i am true to the promptings of the life that is in me i am sincere with my soul at least and that is what you are not there was a sting in what he said perhaps after all i was playing a cowardly part and the more i thought about it the more it appeared that my duty to myself lay in doing what he had advised lay in joining forces with johnson and leech and working for his death right here i think entered the austere conscience of my puritan ancestry impelling me toward lurid deeds and sanctioning even murder as right conduct i dwelt upon the idea it would be a most moral act to rid the world of such a monster humanity would be better and happier for it 
life fairer and sweeter. I pondered it long, lying sleepless in my bunk, and reviewing in endless procession the facts of the situation. I talked with Johnson and Leach during the night watches, when Wolf Larsen was below. Both men had lost hope. Johnson, because of temperamental despondency. Leach, because he had beaten himself out of the vain struggle and was exhausted. But he caught my hand in a passionate grip one night, saying, I think you're square, Mr. Van Waden, but stay where you are and keep your mouth shut. Say nothing but saw wood. We're dead men, I know it. But all the same, you might be able to do us a favor sometime when we need it damn bad. It was only next day, when Wainwright Island loomed to windward, close abeam, that Wolf Larsen opened his mouth in prophecy. He had attacked Johnson, been attacked by Leach, and had just finished whipping the pair of them. Leach, he said, you know I'm going to kill you sometime or other, don't you? A snarl was the answer. And as for you, Johnson, you'll get so tired of life before I'm through with you that you'll fling yourself over the side. See if you don't. That's a suggestion, he added in an aside to me. I'll bet you a month's pay he acts upon it. I had cherished a hope that his victims would find an opportunity to escape while filling our water barrels, but Wolf Larsen had selected his spot well. The ghost lay half a mile beyond the surf line of a lonely beach. Here debauched a steep gorge with precipitous volcanic walls which no man could scale. And here, under his direct supervision, for he went ashore himself, Leach and Johnson filled the small casks and rolled them down to the beach. They had no chance to make a break for liberty in one of the boats. Harrison and Kelly, however, made such an attempt. They composed one of the boat's crews, and their task was to ply between the schooner and the shore, carrying a single cask each trip. Just before dinner, starting for the beach with an empty barrel, they altered their course and bore away to the left to round a promontory which jutted into the sea between them and Liberty. Beyond its foaming base lay the pretty villages of the Japanese colonists and smiling valleys which penetrated deep into the interior. Once in the fastnesses they promised, and the two men could defy Wolf Larsen. I had observed Henderson and Smoke loitering about the deck all morning and I now learned why they were there. Procuring their rifles, they opened fire in a leisurely manner upon the deserters. It was a cold-blooded exhibition of marksmanship. At first, their bullets zipped harmlessly along the surface of the water on either side of the boat. But as the men continued to pull lustily, they struck closer and closer. Now watch me take Kelly's right oar, Smoke said, drawing a more careful aim. I was looking through the glasses, and I saw the oar blade shatter as he shot. Henderson duplicated it, selecting Harrison's right oar. The boat slewed around. The two remaining oars were quickly broken. The men tried to row with the splinters, and had them shot out of their hands. Kelly ripped up a bottom board and began paddling, but dropped it with a cry of pain as its splinters drove into his hands. Then they gave up letting the boat drift till a second boat, sent from the shore by Wolf Larsen, took them in tow and brought them aboard. Late that afternoon, we hove up anchor and got away. Nothing was before us but the three or four months hunting on the sealing grounds. The outlook was bleak indeed, and I went about my work with a heavy heart. 
an almost funereal gloom seemed to have descended upon the ghost wolf larsen had taken to his bunk with one of his strange splitting headaches harrison stood listlessly at the wheel half supporting himself by it as though wearied by the weight of his flesh the rest of the men were morose and silent i came upon kelly crouching to the lee of the forecastle scuttle his head on his knees his arms about his head in an attitude of unutterable despondency johnson i found lying full length on the forecastle head staring at the troubled churn of the forefoot and i remembered with horror the suggestion wolf larsen had made it seemed likely to bear fruit i tried to break in on the man's morbid thoughts by calling him away but he smiled sadly at me and refused to obey leech approached as i returned aft i want to ask a favor mr van waden he said if it's your luck to ever make frisco once more will you hunt up matt mccarthy he's my old man he lives on the hill back of the mayfair bakery run in a cobbler's shop that everybody knows and you'll have no trouble tell him i live to be sorry for the trouble i brought him and the things i'd done and and just tell him god bless him for me i nodded my head but said we'll all win back to san francisco leach and you'll be with me when i go to see matt mccarthy i'd like to believe you he answered shaking my hand but i can't wolf larsen'll do for me i know it and all i can hope is he'll do it quick and as he left me i was aware of the same desire at my heart since it was to be done let it be done with dispatch the general gloom had gathered me into its folds the worst appeared inevitable and as i paced the deck hour after hour i found myself afflicted with wolf larsen's repulsive ideas what was it all about where was the grandeur of life that it should permit such wanton destruction of human souls it was a cheap and sordid thing after all this life and the sooner over the better over and done with i too leaned upon the rail and gazed longingly into the sea with the certainty that sooner or later i should be sinking down down through the cool green depths of its oblivion End of chapter 16。Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish, right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just six dollars. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba da ba ba ba.